They stepped into the cage with their reputations on the line. Were they marks for the business? Were they champions in the making? We're about to find out when we talk about the fights of UFC 1. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Can you believe it? Can you believe it's been two weeks since you heard our voices? We are back with another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Pro Wrestling History Nerds, what do we do? What are we about? What are we into? We plumb the deep, rich history of professional wrestling. And that is technically not what we're talking about today, but in a way, it really is. If you have listened to our carnival episodes, if you've listened to our episodes about Gotch, you understand that there is a long history in the days of legitimate professional wrestling where the carnival challenge was king. Somebody would set up a stage in the middle of a carnival as it comes to town and says, who can step up and beat me in a fight? I'll hand over a bunch of money to anyone who can do it. And that is the same description for the Ultimate Fighting Championship in its early days, in the Gracie days. And I'm not here to talk about it by myself. Who am I? I'm Nick Gossard, professional wrestling promoter, booker, whatever. But I am here with the Cornelius to my Dr. Zayas. It's Chongo Bronson. Co-pilot of the Pro Wrestling TARDIS as we have it dial set to 1993 for the first UFC so we can explain the nuances and similarities of combat sports and professional wrestling, which we like to call... A Hippodrome! Yes, we got that one. Good job. And this technically wasn't a Hippodrome, as we discussed in our previous episode, where we covered everything leading up to the conception, to the execution of the first UFC. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, this wasn't meant to jumpstart a brand new sport or even to bring Valley Tudo as a sport from Brazil to the United States. This was an infomercial. This was a commercial. This was an advertising campaign with very high stakes to convince Americans from coast to coast to invest in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, or as we know it now, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. We'll talk about the difference and the non-difference here in a bit, but yes, there are very serious similarities between the old carnival days of the Open Challenge and the uh, you know marketing value of the Gracie Challenge from its humble beginnings in Horion's garage all the way to the heights of UFC 4. It's all about making money. It's all about stacking the deck in your favor. It's making sure that the the uh, the 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 not necessarily predetermined, but what you hope is a predetermined outcome comes true. Because even in a real fight, no matter how much the deck is stacked in your favor, shit can happen. Shit can go wrong. And that's where we're really getting into the nuance of the gray area between a work and a shoot. At what point does it become a work? when every variable is manipulated to influence towards a certain outcome. At some point, there's an element of a work involved, even if all of the fighters are absolutely competing to win. It's a a stacked deck. It's a favorable matchup. It's a favorable path to the finals. And I'm excited to get into it, man, because this is so, so important to what pro wrestling and the world of combat sports has become. And it had been a very long time since I watched the first UFC. I watched it on VHS as soon as it was available at Blockbuster. I watched it many times when I finally bought a copy. Um, But I hadn't really watched it the same way that you would say study tape of an opponent or something you were trying to explain academically. I had not watched it that way ever. And I hadn't watched it period in probably 10 years. So this was a crazy experience for me watching these old NHB. It wasn't MMA. MMA did not exist. This was no holds barred, a style versus style clash, not meant to launch a new sport, but to create a spectacle to make Gracie Jiu-Jitsu look triumphant over all the things that movies and media had told us would be the killing blow, the dim mac, the death kick, the spin kick or the splits and then the uppercut to the balls as we saw in Van Damme movies. Nobody expected to see how this turned out unless you were wearing a jujitsu gi at the time. Which nobody in America was. 
I guarantee 99.999% of people had never even heard of jujitsu or could tell you what differentiates it from any other martial art. If there were bookies paying attention to this weird freak show, carnival show in Denver, Colorado at the McNichols Arena in 1993, the betting odds, if anybody was paying attention and actually betting, would have been putting their money on people like Ken Shamrock or Patrick Smith, the skinny kid in his uh, jujitsu gi, or as they called it, his karate pajamas. Nobody would have put a dollar on that kid. I'm surprised, uh, honestly, we didn't find out that Horion or somebody hadn't put like $50,000 in bets on that guy on the side. Carnival tradition, pro wrestling tradition. Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. I certainly hope it did, though it probably didn't. No, it probably did, old chap. I mean, I can't imagine if he was looking to influence this many out aspects of the outcome that he wouldn't try to, you know, make a little on the back end, as they say. Well, he may not have bet, uh, you know, a bunch of money on the outcome of matches, but he definitely bet the reputation of his family, his style, and his school in a way that very few schools would have done at that point. The only ones that really had were absolute maniacs like Count Dante that we talked about a few episodes ago, who would storm into the dojos of fellow karate practitioners and just start beating the shit out of people before they even knew what was happening. Not necessarily the Gracie way. They made a challenge, let people come to them. This was the first time they tried to present that concept on a huge stage in a pay-per-view. And though, as we keep referencing... They got to kind of handpick their opponents and handpick who was going into this thing. And like we talked about last week, a lot of big names were offered fucking scraps when they're used to feasting to appear in this thing with huge risks to both their safety and their reputation. They said no. We sound like we're talking a lot of shit going into this. That's one thing I want to kind of cover right now, where we're talking a lot of shit, but we have nothing but respect for anyone who gets into the ring. We just kind of look at a lot of these fighters in the carnival wrestling sense as marks. They didn't know what they were getting into. They didn't know what they were facing. They were just the equivalent of the local tough trying to make $25 outlasting the wrestling champion advertised at the carnival. Yeah, there was a vast discrepancy in knowledge of differentiating martial arts from grappling to striking. You were lucky to be a master of one style, let alone have a concept of how to work in a different style. If you were a striker, if you were a kickboxer, a kung fu artist, and then you got put into a grappling situation, that was completely foreign to you. So the components of the style versus style presentation... May, I mean, imagine that. They basically scripted a Mortal Kombat-like tournament to promote their martial art because they they set set it up so that he would have the path, optimal path to, to win the tournament, man. And it was a beautiful thing. Because here is something very important to remember about martial arts back in those days. The people who were learning Kung Fu or Taekwondo or Karate honestly were not top-level athletes. You had very, very, very little overlap between a karate black belt and a collegiate wrestler. You had very little overlap between somebody who had been doing taekwondo or hapkido or ninjutsu and somebody who had been doing something a little more practical with practical randori like a judoka or a you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu or, you know, an actual wrestler who came up through high school. Martial arts was kind of fantasy land. It was very almost Game of Thrones. It was for the nerds who did not get picked first at kickball. Yeah, and and there was a, a vast difference in just what was considered martial arts at that time. Amateur high school wrestling was not thought of as a martial art. Boxing was not thought of in the traditional sense as a martial art. Those were Western fighting styles and they were categorized in a very different way. But that made for that, that, that was the internal, the eternal question up until it was answered. Style versus style, what style would win? And that was the beautiful drawing point of this first UFC. It was not mixed martial arts as we know it. It was individual style versus individual style to determine the best martial art. 
and the shit was about to hit the fan, proverbial, not literal, that would be a weird thing to show on a pay-per-view, when the bell rang on the preliminary bout. The first match, I only recently got to watch this because it was kind of lost to time because they did a exhibition match as in to create an alternate in case somebody got hurt in the tournament. Nobody did, thankfully, or at least they didn't give up and drop out of the tournament. So there was this exhibition match. There was the first UFC match ever, and it really didn't uh, surface until Fight Pass was created, so you could watch it online. I'm actually very impressed with Fight Pass. Uh, they have tons of pride, tons of UFC. I don't necessarily like a lot of the business model of the UFC, but this is a fantastic resource of grappling, NHB, MMA, all of it. And the first match before the pay-per-view even started was an alternate match between Trent Jenkins and Jason DeLucia. Jason DeLucia was listed as 20-1 and one and a red sash in Kung Fu. Jenkins was listed as 12-4, and four, six KOs, and as we uh, previously mentioned, he caught the eye of Horion Gracie and Art Davies by beating the shit out of Bloodsport quotation true story creator Frank Dukes at a uh, karate expo. And the two came out very much how you kind of would expect that. Their, their sideways stance, very Kung Fu-esque, uh, throwing like the, the, the shuffle sidekicks or the uh, spinning heel hooks. Nobody's making hard contact. Jenkins did throw a wheel kick that did cut Delusha's uh, bridge of his nose, but that was with a toenail, not with impact. But these two guys are throwing all the things you would expect because of what movies taught us, but nobody's being hurt, nobody is being uh, damaged, nobody is going down, until Jason Delusha, who previously had fought Hoist Gracie at a Gracie Challenge match at the Torrance Academy, and then had been learning jiu-jitsu via VHS. Some people can pick things up via uh, VHS or DVD or online YouTube, whatever you want to do. Some people 100% need the most coaching in the world. That seems like Jason DeLucia. He not so much shot for a takedown as he did what would happen if you drunkenly tripped over your own shoelace, tried to grab your friend, and dragged them to the canvas. And it really illustrates the lack of well-rounded knowledge. He was a, a, an expert in a certain aspect of martial arts, uh, lead dominant Eastern martial arts style, Kung Fu, where your strong hand is in front. It's more used for quick offense and it doesn't really do a lot of damage. And it showed that once he exhausted what he could do with that, he really had no more tools in his toolkit. Because guys like this had been used to doing point sparring. Point sparring is based on contact, not actual damage, impact, whatever. It's like, oh, I touched you. That's good enough. It's like counting coup. But when it comes to putting somebody away, a lot of eyes got opened in these first UFC tournaments because they were throwing what they thought was like this fucking devastating move. And the other guy just kept walking forward, uh, not uh, reacting whatsoever. And psychologically, that can be devastating when you throw what you think is a killer move and the other guy doesn't even blink. That is maybe the single most influential psychological aspect of a fight. When you hit someone with what you think is your best shot and it doesn't get the job done and they keep walking forward, it really demoralizes you. And Jenkins managed to stand back up because Delusia, despite watching uh, Gracie videos and having fought Hoist Gracie, he did not have coaching. He was not good on the ground, but he did manage to get behind Jenkins and kind of suck him to the ground. Once again, it's less a takedown as it is falling over while holding on to another person. But he got the rear naked choke. Jenkins tapped out. End of fight. They weren't needed later in the tournament, but it did set the tone with honestly what most people thought was going to happen in this, but shows at the end what it was going to be. Yeah, and it also um, foreshadows very accurately what type of techniques gets the job done to finish fights. Jenkins went on to a 0-4 MMA record. These things happen. Some people aren't quite on the uh, level of 
legitimate competition, but he will always be uh, have a place in my heart because he beat the shit out of Frank Dukes. Delucia joined the Lion's Den, was coached by Ken Shamrock, became a Pancras star, suffered a ruptured liver versus Boss Rutan, and later suffered a horrible knee injury versus Joe Slick at UFC 23, which was a firm reminder on why you don't wear shoes in MMA. Yeah, that was nasty. Both of those things are, are terrible, terrible uh uh, just wounds to have inflicted on you in a fight. I mean, first of all, a liver shot from Boss Rutan, probably the most noted liver strike artist maybe in the history of MMA. A hundred percent. He hunted that like nobody's business in Pancrase. And, you know, I, I haven't watched it in a while. I do need to rewatch his fight versus Randleman. His yeah. justification for winning the title over Randleman was that he took the soul out of that man with a liver shot and he just laid on him for the next, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. I'll watch it at some point. We can talk about it then. But then coming up, we had the start of the actual pay-per-view. We do need to kind of address the weird production of this because this was very much taped together. This was thrown together in many ways at the last minute. There were things like the fact that the martial arts and mainstream sports media didn't bother showing up. The building was half empty. Everybody assumed this was some freak show out of a carnival. In many ways, they were right that they didn't think deserved the respect that it did. Nobody was really covering it. Black Belt didn't send anybody. Inside Kung Fu didn't send anybody. They would definitely change their minds later. But for the moment, that's what it was. Only about uh, um, half the tickets were sold. It was half empty. They did a good job of making it look good on pay-per-view. We had things like the weird and not very good commentary by Superfoot Bill Wallace, Jim Brown, and Kathy Long, with additional analysis from Rod Machado, not a Machado brother, not a jiu-jitsu guy. He was somebody who was a pilot and a public speaker with a martial arts background who somehow got a spot talking about this when the others weren't weirdly talking to each other. Yeah, First of all, what a great idea a four-person booth is in any sports commentary setting, let alone where no one in the booth knows what the fuck they're looking at. I'm sure Jim Brown was probably, you know, laughing at Hoist Gracie when he came out in his gi. I mean, when you watch it back, it just, it's astonishing to think how short of time ago that really was with where the average fan has so much more knowledge of everything that was going on than anyone in the commentary booth at that time. But it was brilliant because it brought a sense of legitimacy to the traditional martial artists, to the people who read Black Belt magazine and such. This is the sort of commentary you would hear on a karate tournament on ESPN2 at three in the morning in 1992. It just did not work in retrospect because Everybody just was talking over each other. They didn't really understand what they were watching. Sometimes they didn't even understand the rules. Jim Brown clearly didn't even know what fucking state he was in. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of lack of energy. This was just kind of like a a, a low energy analysis of what they were watching by people who didn't really understand what they were watching. But once again, it was smart because it brings in that uh, the legitimate traditional martial art crowd who might go, oh, Superfoot's doing the commentary. I might buy a pay-per-view or check out the VHS. Yeah, and the same thing with Jim Brown for the crossover promotion with football audiences and tough guy sort of associations. But yeah, it was it was really painful to watch them trying to explain something that they had no knowledge of. And we hear things like Hoist Gracie being pronounced Royce Gracie and Taylor Tooley being referred to as Taylor. They also had Brian Kilmeade, co-host of Jim Brown's radio show, interviewing the fighters on the way out to the ring, who clearly annoyed the hell out of everyone he talked to with his high energy and would not back off with his constant questions. Yeah, especially pre-fight interviews. I'm glad that that is a thing of the past because the last thing I want to do is talk to some nerd before I'm about to go get my ass kicked. The referees for the night were... uh, Hal Alberto Barreto and Elio Vigio, Brazilian refs with Valley Chudo experience. So they really did import people who knew what they were doing. However, they, I, I hate to say this, they didn't do a very good job. Case in point, with the first fight of the pay-per-view, Taylor Tuli versus Gerard Jordeau. Nobody would ever forget this fight after seeing this goddamn thing. Jordo was an imposing Kyokushin karate and savat fighter from Holland, standing 6'5 and weighing 215. He was supposed to face 
Hoist Gracie in the first round initially, but when they discovered Jordeau had grappling experience and had competed in rings in Japan, they changed the bracket. Not shady at all. But you know what? That's the Carney way. Home cooking, booking, and the history of MMA as we know it would be different if they didn't make that switch. And honestly, this matchup was amazing. This was, uh, this was uh, Sagat versus E Honda, right? It was very Street Fighter because yeah, yeah you had a a kickboxer style, but it was like a weird kickboxing style that not many Americans knew about unless yeah. you were like very deep in that Panther production uh, you know, instructional VHS land of Savat, which is a French kickboxing style. And Taylor Tuli, who was a sumo wrestler and a fairly well accomplished one and right out of the gate they kind of stalked each other taylor tuli rushed the guy in sumo style but you know what you're not trying to push a guy out of the ring you're trying to finish him off jordo circled around threw him into the ring kind of picked his shot kicked him in the face and then threw an uppercut from fucking hell while he was on the knee the kick launched three teeth yeah. out of his fucking mouth two stuck in jordo's foot another one went flying out towards commentary the uppercut busted taylor tuli's eye socket open but it also broke jordo's hand because here's the thing if you've been fighting with 16 ounce gloves you don't understand how fragile the hand is when you're throwing bare knuckles yeah and it was such a visual shocking moment of explaining we are now in uncharted territory with fucking fighting this sumo wrestler just got his teeth kicked in and then punched in the face and he got his he he broke his hand on his face and there's teeth sticking out of this guy's foot. It's the first match in the tournament. It was fucking insane. And on top of that, Ken Shamrock at this point was in the back watching this, and he at this point still wasn't a hundred percent sure this was on the up and up. He came from that you know, Japanese wrestling tradition where they claim it's a shoot, but it's really a work, or maybe it is, maybe it isn't, or Pancrase, where sometimes it was actually a uh, shoot. But when he saw that, he went, "Oh, this is real. Fuck yeah!" And that set the tone for the rest of the night. The next match. Kevin Rogier versus Zane Frazier. Rogier came in, I hate to say it this way, heavy as fuck. He had retired, put on a ton of weight, and he came out of retirement to accept this challenge. And they listed him as 66 and 8, all 66 by KO. Wikipedia backed those numbers up with almost no information on the opponents. They are what the guys on crime and sports call no linkers because there is no information on these people. The only four matches listed were, you know, were, were people I didn't know, but included a KO loss to Maury Smith, who we do know. And when you listen to somebody say 66 and 0, that's fucking impressive. Unless you're in the business of the fight game and you realize how many like part-time fighters, part-time used car salesmen are training two days a week and somehow still get in the ring technically with a pro card. Yeah, to... to pad your stats to get a record like 66-0. First thing that tells me is you're not fighting dangerous opponents if you have that many wins without a loss. Second, who this isn't verified. This is just, you know, carny nonsense and everyone's throwing out, you know, I won the Kuma. I mean, it's Frank Duke's evolution at, the, at its finest. And this is so awesome because he came in overweight, out of his element, representing... He was the representative of kickboxing, right? Correct. He was an American kickboxer. He did do some boxing. Didn't do as well in boxing as he did in kickboxing. Uh, his post-UFC uh, one career was a little lackluster. But you know what? Knocking out 66 people, if that's 100% true, is honestly fantastic no matter how bad the opponents were. And these two came out kind of very aggressive right out of the gate. Rogier came out chasing him and landed an overhand right on Zane Frazier. And it turned into an awkward clinch fest, showing what happens when guys have no grappling experience or even real Muay Thai training. When it hits the ground, neither had even the first clue to get a position or to defend or what even to do. It was like watching two koala bears trying to climb each other. That's what happens when you have a very limited toolbox and you get into very strange territory. They're lucky that they didn't end up in the in the clutches of a submission expert because it was really, really remarkable to see the watching it back 
this last week, the difference that you would never let anyone in the ring with someone that had a professional level of experience with, I mean, it's, it's astonishing. If you have a chance, go back and watch this. Cause when you see the gap in knowledge based on what we think of now as MMA, it's really, it's shocking. As Kathy Long said on commentary, if these two knew how to grapple, he could end this a little bit sooner. There were enough fireworks to keep the crowd happy, both clearly tired after about two minutes of striking. Rogier punched Frazier to the canvas and stomped the head for the finish when his opponent's corner threw in the towel. Once again, it was just something where he managed to finish it despite having no idea what to do once his opponent or even himself were on the ground. He exhausted himself overreaching his own tools. He wasn't the complete package. He got tired, but you know what? He at least won. He moved on in the tournament. Yeah. He moved on in the tournament. Yeah, and it's it's just, again, the Wild West, uncharted waters. These guys have no idea what's going to happen. This is now, what, the third fight in the history of what we know of as cage fighting, and it is... Terrify you! You can't imagine the amount of nerves that these guys are going through right now. I can only try to envision what that would be like to go into a type of combat that has never been performed before. It's really just terrifying, especially when you know how bare their toolkit was. But one person who knew exactly how this was going to go, one person who knew exactly what to do in this type of environment was coming up next. When Hoist Gracie took on boxer Art Jimerson, the guy that everybody will remember for wearing that one glove in the match, they somehow let him wear that despite the constant argument over the rules at the meeting. But he came out wearing a glove on his lead hand because as far as he was concerned, he was going to lad a couple jabs, protect his hand, and then finish this guy off with whatever he threw next, be it a cross hook uppercut. He looked at this little skinny guy who he had 20 pounds on and went, I'm going to fucking knock you out in seconds. Shocking news. That's not what happened. And Jimerson was a good boxer in the St. Louis region. He was a regional top guy. Um, he was, you know, he was very well known. He was undefeated for a long time in the area, but he had no idea what to do other than boxing. And the reason he was in this tournament, the reason he was facing off with Gracie when they reshuffled the card, it was very important for the Gracies to beat a boxer because boxing was, yes. and in many ways still is, the king of combat sports in the Americas. It was my, he was my uh, pick to win. I thought it was going to come down to either a wrestler or a boxer. That was my thought at the time. And I thought he was absolutely going to mow down Hoist. And he, if he was going to lose, he would lose to a, a superior grappler later on. Little did I know that the best grappler in the whole, in the whole tournament was his first round opponent. And it, he was tailored, he was put there to show the effectiveness of jujitsu against a striker, against a boxer. Because once you take him out of his range, you get him off his feet, he's helpless. And one thing that did impress me is Superfoot Bill Wallace understanding how a gi is a benefit for the grapplers as the match started. And they kind of stalked each other for a little bit, a little bit of a feeling out process. Jimerson was trying to use lateral movement like a boxer would. Hoist was throwing the front kick that is kind of famous for jiu-jitsu at that point because despite their superiority on the ground, the uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners were never very good wrestlers. Like they were never at the top level of that. So their way of taking somebody down was throw a little bit of a, a almost like a stomp kick on the knee, but using that contact to launch themselves forward and get into a clinch, whether it's a body lock, whether it's a double, doesn't matter. But in this case, he took him down with a double, had him mounted immediately. Uh, and within a minute, Jimerson was tapping out because he had nowhere to go and no idea what to do. Yeah, and if you watch it back, you will you will see that he tapped without having a submission hold in place. It was panic induced by the dominant grappling position that Hoist got. Hoist had mount, and Jimerson could not get out, and he felt completely helpless. And he tapped out before a submission was locked in, and it sh it was one of the first examples of how effective jujitsu really is. 
It made me think of something that Ed O'Neill, uh, Al Bundy from Married to a Children and a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt at this point, said about his first class with Horian Gracie, where Gracie got on top of him and said, you have to get me off of you. I'm going to kill your family if you can't get me out of this position. Struggle that hard. And he literally could not do it from that mount position because a jiu-jitsu fighter in the mount position is almost impossible to dislodge unless you have a very good grappling background. Jimerson was a boxer. He tried using lateral movement, thinking he was going to knock him out with a couple of punches. Didn't happen. Gracie moves on. Did he get kind of the softest... Um, matchup for his uh, particular style, 100%, but that doesn't guarantee victory. So it wasn't a work. It was just stacked in his favor. He moves on. He won the fight. Yeah, a favorable matchup in the first round, and that's, you know, someone's going to get a favorable matchup one way or the other. It doesn't hurt when your uncle's the booker, but hey, uh, Chongo digresses. The fact is, he showed the effectiveness of jujitsu versus a pure boxer, and it showed that you can take a boxer to a realm where they have no knowledge of what they're even in. And up next was Ken Shamrock versus Patrick Smith. Shamrock was representing shoot fighting. And if you're wondering what the hell is shoot fighting, shoot fighting, and I'm sorry to uh, Jake Shannon if you're listening to this, it is catch wrestling without the pins. It's that tradition of what Carl Gotch brought to Japan, taught everybody that catch wrestling style, but they went for more of a fast-paced pro wrestling style where it's more submission over position. And with the birth of Pancrase, they pretty much called their style shoot fighting to pretty much point out that all the other shoot style pro wrestling was fake, was phony, was predetermined. They're the real deal, whether they were or not, that's up for debate all the time, but that's where that name comes from. It's catch wrestling without the pins. And being a member of Pancrase, Ken was announced as just back from the Japanese circuit, and he was announced by the ring announcer, one of the worst ring announcers ever, G-Man Rich Goins, who is a local radio personality here in Denver, giving the spot, once again, trying to boost that local audience by letting a radio personality be part of the show. He announced this show, this event, this amazing, groundbreaking uh, event with all the energy of a senior citizen's bingo hall night. It was so low energy, like, Shamrock, Shamrock. <laughs> Smith got the local boy pop for being a Sabake winner, but they gave him a ridiculous announced record of 250 and 0. I highly doubt that. Impossible. Whatever. They faced off. They were very aggressive, very trying to intimidate each other. And within seconds, Shamrock secured a body lock and tossed Smith to the ground. Smith showed some basic grappling skills by getting guard and stayed up on one side, hips out, as opposed to just being flat on his back. Yeah, I mean, the, the rudimentary elements of, of grappling off your back were there. And Shamrock showed that he, he had some, one, he had tenacity. Two, he's got some game, man. He, he was, especially for the time, Pancrase is one of the most evolved combat styles that you could be trained in. And he, he showed it in this first fight. Yeah, Pancrase fighters, and he was very much representing Pancrase, was a new hybrid pro wrestling shoot style, a legitimate fight, or it was most of the time. We can debate that later. But these were legitimate tough guys in pro wrestling from that catch tradition as brought over by Carl Gotch. This was a man who knew how to make people tap out. And if you read Jonathan Snowden's biography of Ken Shamrock, you will realize this is a man who fought a lot, bad childhood, just wanted to prove himself left and right. So this is a man with a lot of fighting experience. But with that Pancrase style of almost submission over position, he grabbed Pat Smith's leg, didn't bother getting a base like we would in jiu-jitsu or wrestling, and fell right back looking for that heel hook. Smith had no idea what to do. He was just throwing wild kicks, one of which actually did catch Shamrock on the eye, busting him open, and Shamrock was looking for a heel hook, and he eventually got it, and Smith tapped out after throwing a few elbows at Ken's shin. Not exactly ideal leg lock defense, but he did his best with what he had, which wasn't much. 
But before the fight, Pat Smith and his team were talking all kinds of shit to Shamrock backstage, claiming Smith was going to kill him and how Smith felt no pain. After the tap out, Shamrock said, you felt that, didn't you? And the fighters almost went at it again for a second time. The crowd, not knowing anything about ground fighting, let alone leg locks, booed it crazily. Yeah, and keep in mind, they just watched someone tap out to the mount in the fight prior. And now there's another submission that just looks like a guy giving up because they don't understand what they're looking at. So you can understand how the audience went from seeing guys getting kicked in the face, getting teeth knocked out to techniques that they don't understand what they've seen. They got pissed real quick because they wanted blood, man. Oh, yeah. These were people who were expecting the blood sport, the kickboxer, the movie spectacle. So when you see a couple of guys rolling around on the ground and you've never seen that before, you get mad. You paid your ticket price. You were expecting the uh, the death touch, the splits to the nut punch, whatever. The expectations were being subverted, but the audience didn't know any better. So they were mad. They thought this was bullshit. They booed it crazily because they were not being entertained in the way that martial arts movie has trained them to be. But that was the end of the first round. The first round is now in the books, and everybody was moving on to the second round, was ready for action, even Gerard Jordot in his match against Zane Frazier, because Jordot entered the cage with a broken hand, which was swelling over the hand wraps. It looked horrible. Uh, he also had a broken foot with two of Taylor Tully's teeth still sticking out of it. They didn't want to remove them because that would have become infected almost immediately. I don't know how Taylor Tuli felt. I would be like, hey man, can I have my teeth back yet? I would like those, please. Yeah, it's a, that's astonishing to me. They let him go back out there with the teeth in the foot. I mean, imagine if he lands another kick with those bad boys. That's like just a, a nasty, nasty combination of things. I can't even think what that could do, but it's, we are so, at this point, the first time I watched this when I was a kid, I remember thinking, okay, this guy is the best striker. We've got a couple submission guys. I thought Ken Shamrock was going to easily roll Hoist Gracie in the second round, and we would have the striker versus the submission guy in the finals. But I, I was right, but I was oh so wrong, brother. And as somebody who's had the same type of break, a boxer fracture, a spiral fracture on his hand, I know how painful this can be. Um, I did go two days before I finally went to the hospital, but in between that, somebody threw me a box of Kleenex. I caught it with my broken hand. I screamed and I fell to the ground, let alone trying to fight another human being with this. And they both came in ready to go. Rogier, who, once again, he was still a little tired. He was still a little overweight. That clearly doesn't go away in an hour. And Rogier was like chasing him around, throwing sloppy kicks, hands down, hounds out. And Jordot put together combos and finishing with leg kicks. He was clearly taking it easy on his, uh, on his right. And he finally dropped Rogier against the cage and landed elbows to the head and stomps to the body until Rogier tapped out in less than a minute. One of my favorite moments is Rogier talking about how he's out of retirement. He's going to fight all these so-called champions, so on and so forth. And they're like, oh, well, did you, uh, you know, how did you prepare knowing that he had a broken hand? And he just freezes like, oh, shit, that guy just whooped my ass with a broken hand. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's <laughs> one of the beautiful moments when you don't realize the damage the other guys got. And what a what a tremendous performance to get through that semifinal with those injuries. And I can't even imagine the level of pain he was already in the second round with a broken hand a dude's teeth stuck in his foot and having to go back and be like, oh, I have to wait a while. And those that's all. this is all only going to get worse from here, but still having the fighting spirit. Jordo, as you know, we kind of learned later on, not a great human being, but I do have to commend his uh, tenacity in this. Yeah, absolutely. To, to fight when you're injured and keep coming forward. And yeah, adrenaline is a hell of a drug, but it's going to wear off in those breaks between fights. And I can only, like you said, I can only imagine the cumulative pain he's in at this point. And the next match started almost immediately. This is a match that we consider the birth of MMA in a way. This is the most important match that we saw that night. It set the tone for years to come, and that is Hoist Gracie versus Ken Shamrock. There was a nice little screw up in the graphics department when they declared it shoot fighting versus karate, but they did their best. And a little bit of a backstory. 
Shamrock hadn't taken this very seriously because he didn't believe it was real. He assumed this was pro wrestling. He assumed it was going to collapse at the last minute. It wasn't even going to happen. And the whole thing was shady as hell on the surface. I fully understand that. And he was more concerned with Pancrase, where he made his living, and had a fight four days earlier in Japan against Takaku Fuke, whom he defeated. So this is a guy who wasn't even like really thinking about this type of thing, because he yeah. kind of assumed it wasn't going to happen. He's making his money in Japan doing Pancrase. He had a fight four days earlier, had a whole camp for it, and then he has to come back to Denver because this whole thing turned out to be real. And he doesn't even know it's a shoot fight, legitimate competition fight until he watches the first one. I mean, that's how unprepared he was. He didn't realize the advantage that the Gi was going to give Hoist. That's how unprepared he was. And that was by design, man. They had a nice stare down. Shamrock, of course, trying to be like the intimidating pro wrestler, uh, tough guy that he you know pictured himself to be. And in fact, he kind of was at that time. But they go to their corners. They come out at the bell. Hoist immediately shoots a double Shamrock Sprawls, underhooks and turns Hoist, but uh, it was way too high to get mount on a jiu-jitsu black belt. Scrambles, they stand up. Hoist pulls guard and starts kicking the back like that kidney uh, kick that we see from the guard in those days. As uh, much as we see that and think it's kind of, uh, you know, hack material, if we were uh, describing it as comedy, those things fucking hurt. Yeah, that shit hurts. The heel kicks to the back, to the soft meat and the... The ribs, it, it, it takes a toll. And you saw he got a reaction out of it. Yeah, because Shamrock started scrambling. He was looking for a way out. Uh, Hoist was hitting him with palm strikes to try to get a reaction out of him to get him to turn for that choke. Ken goes for an escape that might have worked fine without a gi in play, but instead he's caught with a choke and taps out. But somehow the referee didn't see it, but Hoist lets go because he saw the tap out himself. Ken kept fighting and struggling for a second, but admits he tapped out after Hoist complains to the referee. That's the end of the fight. So it's it's you know it is understandable. I mean it's it is what it is. You know the you always make sure the ref sees what you're doing before you call it quits. I had a situation where a friend of mine we went to a um, submission tournament. You know fucking a million years ago, and he caught a guy with a knee bar. But it's one of those tournaments where there's matches happening on different areas of the big area. So he hears somebody say tap, he lets go. Oh, shit. And it wasn't his referee. The guy tries to get a, a choke on him. He has to pretty much like fight out of that. And he ended up winning, but it's still like, oh shit, you really need to hold on until the ref makes you let go sometimes. Yeah, and and really neither of these guys are in the wrong because on the one hand, Hoist was being honorable and respecting the tap. And on the other hand, Shamrock didn't get stopped by the ref. So he went, he tapped, the, the whole guy let go, the ref didn't stop, and he kept going. And that that's what you're trained to do, to fight until the ref tells you to stop. And that brings up a very important question. What would have happened if Hoist was not wearing a gi in this match? Because keep in mind, very few people really understood what a judo gi or a jiu-jitsu gi could do in a fight like this. If you were not Brazilian, if you weren't a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, a Gracie, however you want to put it, the gi was a weapon unto itself. Um, we saw that there was a point in the uh, fight where Ken tried rolling back for a leg lock. Once again, he had bad position, but his arm was trapped under Gracie's arm with that gi. Clearly, you're not going to slip out of that. He used that to roll up to the mount position. And I, I would like to say that for a while, we've been kind of talking about what would have happened if Gracie couldn't wear the gi. If everybody was like, oh, that that's a weapon. You don't get to wear that here. And I was saying, I feel like Shamrock might have won the fight. But after watching this and seeing how reckless Shamrock was with position, I don't think he would have pulled it out no matter what. Yeah, I think he would have got submitted. It would have taken a little bit longer. But the tactical choices that he made clearly illustrated that he was not on the level of Hoist Gracie when it came to grappling, submissions, setups, positioning, any of it. And Ken Shamrock, he made a lot of mistakes. He might not have won that day, but he learned what a jiu-jitsu gi could do. He had respect for it. He trained with the Machados later to learn how to fight a man with a gi. He went forward with his career. The rest is legend. The rest is history. 
If you don't know, maybe we'll talk about it later. But now we get to something very strange because they needed to give the finalists time to rest and prepare for the final of this tournament. So while they were resting, Horion Gracie held a ceremony honoring his father, Elio Gracie, and credited him with creating Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, presented him with a plaque because of course he did. It's it's all, once again, it's an infomercial for his family's brand, for his family's story, and the crowd had no idea what was happening or who these people are, so they booed the shit out of it. Well, that was exactly why, how he drew it up in the sand and how he planned it when he booked it. It was an opportunity to go into business and put over the family style, and he went for it, and it fell flatter than a fart in church. It was terrible, man, because... Helio did not deserve that disrespect. He's, he truly is a legend, and it sucks that that was his first exposure. Exactly. And it's something where this is a legitimate old-school Valley Tudo Jiu-Jitsu legend. Uh, we'll say legend because sometimes a legend isn't exactly the same as history or truth. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But this man definitely deserved respect. But Horion, for some reason, thought that the crowd would just naturally respond to this in a respectful way, as opposed to being a bunch of drunken yahoos who were here to see fights and were mad that some old guy is talking and holding a plaque. Yeah, he should have booked a better flex spot than this, you know? He should have thought about that and maybe, you know, I don't know what he... He should have had the alligators. That would have been the perfect time for the alligators. Everybody likes alligators. I don't know why they didn't have them. Would have been a great visual. Would have been better than that... Uh WCW uh, pay-per-view where they had like the the wild dogs roaming outside the ring and they just were, you know, just shitting everywhere because they didn't know what else to do. Sometimes people make bad decisions in the fight game. And one person who definitely was making a mistake, but we have to commend him, was Gerard Jordot coming out in the finals against Hoist Gracie. Imagine how much pain he had to be in. He had two teeth stuck in his foot for the last hour and a half. He had a broken hand and he was going to have to try to fight a dude. This, these are horrible conditions under the best circumstances. No matter what you say about a fighter uh, going into a match with an injury, you have to commend them for stepping into the ring, knowing they're at a disadvantage, knowing they may not win because of these circumstances, but still taking the fight. Yeah, a striker with multiple breaks in his limbs, his foot's broken, got teeth sticking out of it, his hand's broken, his weapons are damaged, and he's still going forward into the finals. And it was a, it was a, a true testament to the fighting spirit and it was a real eye-opener for me because I had never seen anything other than an amateur wrestling tournament with multiple fights in one day. This was like a sword fighter showing up for a duel and his, uh, you know, katana, his broadsword, whichever culture we're backing right here, is broken in half. Yeah. He did not have his primary weapons. So there is the conversation, would that have saved him? I'm going to say probably not because... Again, this is a man with very limited grappling skills. Gracie did what Gracie does. He was landing that front kick, just trying to make contact to turn it into a shoot. Landed it, shot in, body lock with a trip, and pushed your dough into the fence. After a short struggle, Gracie got him down and was immediately in the mount. Jordo turned and was quickly caught in the choke. Gracie seemed to hold the choke a little bit long despite the ref trying to end it, partially to make sure that the ref saw the tap, much like with the Shamrock fight where he missed it, and also because Gerard Jordot fucking bit him. Well, you know, I, uh, when in Rome, as they say, this is no holds barred, and I know biting was not allowed even at this time, but you're in there, you're fighting, you, you got a broken hand, uh, you know, Mike Tyson did it. Yeah, I mean, Jordot really did have that like, well, I was going to fucking lose anyway, why not? And Jordot did go on to have a very controversial career. He did blind a Japanese fighter with an, with an eye gouge. He was not a very clean fighter. You really can't tap dance around his, uh, his, his absolute um, rule-breaking bullshit that led to injuries. So let's not romanticize the bite too much as uh, some sort of like hilarious little bit. But the fight was over. The tournament was over. 
Hoist was awarded with a cartoonishly large check for $50,000. He was hoisting it up. It's enormous. It's like he won a spelling bee or some sort of sweepstakes uh, game show. It's It was very silly. He was given a uh, Olympic-style medal, and his whole family swarmed in and hoisted him up in celebration. It was quite a remarkable thing to see at the time because at the end of the day, the smallest least scary looking guy won the tournament and he did it in a way that we didn't really understand how he did it two of those fights it was like the the tap out was almost a phantom maneuver that the camera didn't catch and we didn't understand and it was really what set jujitsu on the path that we know now because nobody had seen anything like this, both in structure and in outcome. So Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was triumphant. The skinny, unassuming Jiu-Jitsu fighter in his quote-unquote karate pajamas was triumphant over the kickboxers, the pro wrestlers, the muscle men, the heavier fighters, the boxers. He beat everybody in front of him and honestly made it look fucking easy because none of these people understood how to grapple. We have talked about how, you know, one of the easiest ways to uh, to win a tournament or a fight if you're not doing a, a predetermined worked outcome is to stack the deck in their favor completely because as we saw nobody knew how to stop a takedown nobody knew how to fight somebody with a judogi nobody knew how to fight on the ground position submission etc it was a bunch of goofballs who had no idea what to do in these positions but you know what that doesn't necessarily mean it's impossible for that person to lose it just means the odds are lower and that's pro wrestling at its roots yeah, everyone had a fighter's chance, but at the end of the day, superior technique proved how insurmountable it is when you have this little skinny guy. I mean, what did Ken Shamrock have, 50 pounds on him? Easily. What did Jardot have, 50, 40 pounds? Um, something like that. Five, it was, six, it was like inches? It was like 215 versus 165, 170, something yeah. like that. It was significant weight and physique and... You know, just, just just general, like, appearance. Like, Ken Shamrock looked like he was chiseled from marble to show off a, uh, yeah. a, a fucking Greek god, and Shamrock put him away. Jordo was taller, heavier, and had shown so many, uh, you know, so much KO power in his yeah. strikes, despite being injured, he put him away as well. So the crowd did finally react to Gracie, who was triumphant over all these other styles, despite the fact that his brother was the promoter, his brother was the matchmaker. And honestly, if you're a fighter and the promoter is representing the fighter you're facing, you got to ask some questions. And if they're the booker, the matchmaker and everything, you really need to stop and say, am I a fighter or am I the mark? Yeah, because that kind of smells like something that we we kind of go in depth on around here. What's that word? I forget what. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Hippodrome. Yes, 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 indeed. This was a beautiful uh, example of how fighting and actual competition can be manipulated without becoming a, a full-on work. And that was so, so on display here because the pathway that Gracie got to the finals was tailor-made for his style, but he also had to get the job done, and he did get the job done. And the event was an unqualified success across the board, despite the low ticket sales and the lack of mainstream media. It sold 86,000 pay-per-views and delivered exciting fights with enough blood and violence to make the circus freak audience happy, and enough technical grappling to change the course of martial arts forever. It went on to be the hottest VHS tape for sale and rent. I remember having to wait sometimes two weeks to be able to rent it for the fifth time at Blockbuster. Oh yeah, the first UFC I ever saw was UFC 5, and then the second one, the next day I went back and rented UFC 1. It was so, so, it was like, it was like getting a hold of a Playboy back then. You, it was not easily accessible. It, this was, again, pre-widespread internet. You couldn't just download shit on fucking YouTube. To get your hands on these tapes was 
very, very cool and very, it was almost dangerous. You know what I mean? It was, it was so different than anything that was out there. And it truly shaped who I became as a person. Man. It made me think of like, you know, at the same age, you know, we were kind of, we were kind of kids when this happened. It made me think of like trying to rent, you know, faces of death where it was like this weird, like, you know, underground thing you didn't totally. understand, but it was very risque. And you like showed the neighbor kid and then his parents called and said he can never come over and hang out again. It changed not just the fighting game, but just like how we consumed media in the fight game. Because up until this point, you know, you didn't really have like the kickboxing matches or tournaments being VHS hot items or boxing matches. That was all cable controlled. So this really cornered a market in VHS. And for the Gracie family, their ticket to fame and fortune in the United States was now secure. Every martial arts magazine that ignored the event now wanted a Gracie brother on the cover of their magazine. They would pay for interviews. They were now a human interest story. Revolutionary martial artists and enrollment and seminars went through the roof. They had their correspondence course where you would form a training group and send them tapes to judge your progress as they sent you tapes to learn the techniques. I remember a a grappling tournament when I was like 18 before there was really any jujitsu schools in the area. And it was like they had a group where they're like a bunch of blue belts and all they've been doing is grappling each other and sending tapes to the Gracie Academy for notes. And in retrospect, those had to be the worst blue belts ever because you don't pick up on the nuances until you have a black belt on top of you. Yeah, and and that's what it was, though. The availability of information was so sparse at that time. My first technical deep dive was through a book. I know a lot of people didn't have access to a coach, a black belt, directly until they were really along on their journey. So, I mean, yeah, I'm sure those blue belts were pretty, pretty, you know, I don't know what you would call that facsimile or you know paper tiger because they weren't really able to get the full experience but it also shows how powerful gracie jiu-jitsu was that people were willing to send away for these instructionals oh yeah i mean you didn't see that since uh was it jack lalane doing the ad where like the bully kicks sand in the the skinny kid's face so he like sends away for the program it comes back muscular and beats up the bully it was a pop culture revolution in martial arts and they cashed in in every way possible they had um, law enforcement. They had the military. Everyone wanted to learn what they called Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And law enforcement was like getting seminars from these guys for something that honestly doesn't translate well to law enforcement or riot control or whatever. The special forces were like paying them to learn jujitsu, even though I don't understand how pulling guard is going to work well on a (laughs) battlefield somewhere or they're creating their competition team. I don't know, but they were making money hand over fist, which is exactly what they planned on doing. Everybody wanted to learn Gracie jujitsu. Everybody was willing to pay top dollar to even get a taste of that level of instruction the infomercial that was the ufc paid off yeah they they changed the world man and their their goal with presenting jujitsu on this platform of the style versus style event it couldn't have gone better because look how the sport has evolved because of this And not only instruction, people wanted competition as Japan, Australia, various other countries started doing their own proto MMA, you know, and, you know, no holds barred, whatever we want to call it events. And they all wanted a Gracie on the card. Every copycat wanted a Gracie to fight in their main event, and they were willing to pay top dollar to do so. And this leads to kind of a funny thing to finish things up on is the story of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and why they called it Gracie versus Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because Horion really was telling his his personal story, his uh, personal brand, his father's brand, completely ignoring everything else that had happened in Brazil that didn't directly lead to his dad. He got there into America just in time to think he could put the foot on the door and keep anybody else from coming up, profiting off of his work and uh, taking credit for things that he had been taking credit for, right or wrong, for up to 20 years at that point. But that is a whole other fucking story that we will tell eventually. And I think you're going to like it. Yeah. And it's, you know, 
the victor gets to write the history books. And this was an example of that. They got to set the narrative of what jiu-jitsu coming from Brazil was and that Gracie jiu-jitsu was the superior style because they proved it in this tournament as far as any of us laymans knew at that time. And it was a beautiful utilization of straight carny shit to promote a legitimate martial art. And that's where we're going to have to leave things for now. We have told the story of the first UFC over two episodes, and we can talk about the weird world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu, the PR campaigns from various factions within that family, because that is pro wrestling as well. But we don't have time for that. We have our own uh, plan for now. And I am so glad you listened to these two episodes. I'm so glad we got to tell these stories because this is a story that's very important to both of us because it introduced both of us to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. This is where we learned what grappling, what submission was. And that led us onto our paths where we learned how to, uh, you know, put on our karate pajamas and, uh, you know, fucking land an armbar from various angles. It influenced not just our martial arts life, but our life in general. And honestly, I can't be grateful enough. Yeah, if it wasn't for this event and this genesis and inception in my mind, I would have been on a completely different path. This influenced my life to a degree that very few things ever did. And I know you feel the same way. And that's why this has been fucking awesome, man, because this personally affected us in our paths coming up. And I've been waiting to talk about this and this was fucking cool. So thank you, brother. Thank you as well. And thank you to everybody who's been uh, following us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, been downloading the episodes. Please subscribe to, uh, you know, to, to whatever app you listen to podcasts on so you don't miss an episode. We've got so many crazy stories to tell, so many crazy stories we have told, and we're glad you have checked in. If you're new, thanks for being here. Check out our old episodes. If you've been around since day one, thanks for sticking around. We're having fun. We're listening, learning, and partying along with you. And for Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye, nerds. Cut print martini. (laughs)